little bit of a background again on uh, Romans before getting into it. Uh, at this time in history, Rome is the largest city in the world. Uh, the population, uh, historians say, would be between two and four million. Okay, and two and four million in the city of Rome, in other words, approximately uh, about the size of Atlanta and the, and the largest city of the world at this time. Uh, to give you an idea of what four million was at that time, uh, when this, at about 1776, in the time of our Declaration of Independence, uh, it's estimated we had about four million Caucasians in this country, in, in the entire United States. And so a very large city, especially by the standards of that time. Another unusual thing is the population that great, and there were more slaves in Rome than free people more slaves and free, and that's because the, the very wealthy, Rome controlled the world, and as they conquered people and subjected them to them, they imported all these slaves into Rome to do their work. In other words, a Roman citizen in Rome probably did very little, if any, work. They just simply brought the people in uh, to do the work, and so more than half the population was slaves. There was uh, a big difference between the, the rich and the poor. You had a small group of rich uh, that totally dominated and controlled, and then the vast majority of the population, keep in mind more than half were slaves, the vast majority of the population was in poverty. And so this big difference between the rich and the poor. The philosophy of life that was in vogue at this time uh, in Rome, uh, probably we would call hedonistic today. In other words, everything revolved around pleasure, uh, having a good time, satisfying any type of desire that you could possibly have, and then out of boredom, inventing uh, other types of desires. That uh, We noted last week in uh, chapter 1 that Paul said as a result of their having left God and had depended on their own thinking that they had become so reprobate in their own minds uh, that men lusted after men and women lusted after women and they committed acts that were absolutely indecent and contrary to nature. And so the, the society, very hedonistic, uh, very amoral, very sexually permissive, uh, a lot of, we, we often say that we're like Rome in the United States today, and there's no question that we have become more and more pagan, but I don't think that from what I've read that we still, uh, as an entire nation, will have quite approached the decadence of, of what we have in Rome at this time. All right, so with that background, Christianity is introduced into Rome. And it, how it got there initially uh, is a matter of speculation. We can historically say that no apostle had been there and introduced it. In fact, Paul, as he writes this letter, makes it clear that he had a desire to go to Rome, but had been prevented from it. And, and the reason that we have this letter is because Paul had been prevented from going to Rome. Uh, whether it's Gentile converts that were converted by Paul are people that were converted on Pentecost or a combination of the two, we don't know exactly. But suffice it to say that people who had been converted by apostles had come to Rome and established the church. And the church was thriving and had developed a faith that had become renowned uh, throughout the Roman world. All right, several things ought to enter our mind as we study the letter itself and as we think in terms of, of Christian evidences through the study of the material. And that is... How do you take this kind of message into a pagan Rome, into the, what we've just described, and convert thousands of people to Christianity? I mean, just simply, and, and keep in mind what you're asking. When you go in, 
you're stepping on all kinds of toes. Uh, that homosexuality was just simply accepted. 14 of the last 15 Caesars were homosexual or bisexual. Uh, the, a lot of things that wouldn't even be accepted in our society today was just totally accepted at this particular time. And so into this society comes the Christian message uh, with this very high sense of morality condemning all of this as sin and demanding and calling people to repentance and at the same time condemning all idolatry saying that there's only one God and then something that must have sounded absurd uh, that Jesus was the Son of God. Alright, the question is what short of the miraculous could you come up with that would persuade so many thousands of people to believe or buy into that kind of message. And so the very fact that so many thousands bought into it is itself evidence of it, some very strong evidence or proofs that were presented to these people and also the change of life that ensued. Now, what Paul's doing as he writes this letter, you've got a church here that's composed mostly of Gentile, but we also have a very high Jewish element in Rome. And he's answering some questions and, and explaining some saying things about the Christian system that the Gentile has in his mind and the Jew has in his mind. Uh, unlike the Gospels that are written primarily for the purpose of producing faith in Christ, Romans is written to people who already have faith in Christ, not only have faith, but by Paul's own statements, they have a strong faith in Christ. So they have heard the evidence uh, for the resurrection of Christ and they have faith in Christ. And so this letter is written to Christians to explain the Christian system of justification to them. So a lot of things that they had done based on their faith as a result of the evidence, Paul now writes and is giving the explanation for it. All right, now, the questions we dealt with last week that was in their mind is, is first of all, what about the accountability of the Gentile before God? Because after all, that unlike the Jews, God has not revealed himself through the, any prophets among the Gentiles. They don't have the law of Moses. And then the question is, just how can they be accountable before God? Well, last week we noted in chapter 1 that beginning with verse 18, the couple of key verses there, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. Okay, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Paul says that man is without excuse in not believing in the creator, that uh, the creation testifies of a creator that something doesn't come from nothing, something is, something had to always be. And so in a similar vein of David saying, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament his handiwork, that Paul is saying that there simply is no excuse for man not recognizing a creator. Well, the next part then is that, well, the, the Gentile has recognition. He's held accountable for recognizing a creator but what kind of a moral standard can God hold him accountable to uh, seeing that he, doesn't, he did not have the law of Moses? And so then in chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 12, chapter 2, beginning with verse 12, uh, Barbara, read that, verses 12 through uh, 16, please. 
For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things contained in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Okay, uh, note the, the statement by Paul that we all have conscience, a sense of ought within us. And he said that Gentiles, verse 14, who did not have the law, in other words, they did not have the written law, do by nature the things required of the law. They're a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. And so that the requirements of the law, they're going to be held accountable for because of their own conscience. They're, they're made in the image of God. And so Paul is saying something that is really assumed all through the Bible, like when uh, Moses told the people that if you keep this law, then you will be a light to other nations. In Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 to 8, and they will say, what nation has righteous laws like this nation? In other words, what nation has laws that are so right, or a God like we've got, that obviously he was assuming the, the inner identification of people with the rightness of that law. When Jesus said that, that we're to be a light to the world, and that people may see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven, he's assuming that those people out there who may not have read one word in the Bible have this inner quality of conscience and so they can identify with what is right and wrong. Uh, we have interesting things of this in the world all the time and individually. Right now, the whole world is gathered against one country and one man, just about the whole world. And that's Saddam Hussein. That's uh, people in China who are atheists have taken a stand against what he did. Uh, Russia, uh, controlled by what has been an atheistic government, taken a, a stand there. Uh, other Muslims have taken a stand. Uh, people of both Catholic and Protestant backgrounds have taken a stand. In other words, uh, when he went into a small country and just wiped it out and took it over, everybody stood back and recalled in indignation and said, that's wrong. Well, that's a value judgment. Uh, that, uh, and, it, and it was just something there that we just, uh, and without any apologies whatsoever, we just seem to think that everybody ought to be able to see that that's wrong for a country just to walk in and run over another country like that. When we read about what Hitler did in World War II, even the most devout Germans today will not defend the Hitler of World War II. That uh, we, we don't bother to explain that why Hitler was wrong. In other words, why was he wrong in exterminating uh, six million Jews? Or wrong in these other things? We don't even bother dealing with that. There, there is the assumption that human beings can simply see and reap with indignation at what that man did. And so there's this inner quality. So Paul says, we have this inner quality. So notice two things now with the Gentile. He said, even though you've never read one word of the Bible, that you have the ability to ascertain a creator. You know that a creator has to exist. And then you have this moral law within you on the basis of your own conscience. And so for that reason, you're without excuse. You stand condemned. All right, then... The question to the Jew was, well, the Jew had the law. But look at chapter 2 and beginning with uh, verse uh, 1. Chapter 2, 
beginning with verse 1 on through about uh, verse 4. Uh, Louise, would you read that, please? You therefore, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, or at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? For you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. Okay. Notice the statement there, uh, speaking, and he's going to elaborate further on that. The Jew may have had the law, and he may have had it all written out, and he could stand back and he could pass judgment on the Gentile, but Paul looks at the Jew and he says, well, wait a minute, take a look at yourself. Who are you to stand up and pass judgment on him because the same law actually condemns you? In other words, you've got it, but you're not perfectly keeping it. Well, Paul is going to develop this theme throughout the book of Romans that you Jew, you have the Gentile, you know exactly what's right, but yet you don't live up to it. And so you stand just as condemned. The Gentile has no excuse. He has his God-given intellect and he has his God-given conscience. You have the law and you didn't live up to it. So you're, you're both without excuse and you both stand condemned. And that's where we're going to be there in the, in the third chapter. Now the theme of the entire book, if he was going to pick a, a short sentence uh, for the entire, as a theme for all that he's going to say is 1 and 16. And probably the, most, the reason being it's the most quoted verse in the book. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. The righteous shall live, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here's our theme sentence for the entire book. And he calls it good news. Well, why is it good news? Well, we're, we're all dying, but it, it's really worse than that. You know, it's one thing to die, and it's another thing to deserve to die. And so we're all designed... We all deserve to die. And he said the Jew deserves to die. The Gentile deserves to die. But the good news is that God has provided a way in Christ that Jew and Gentile can be saved. Well, now after he makes a statement in verse 16, he's got to prove to the Jew that he needs Christ. And he's got to prove to the Gentile that God is not unjust in condemning him. Do you see the difference there? That he's got to prove to the Jew. The Jew had no problem with God's justice. But he's got to prove to him that he actually needs Christ for his justification. To the Gentile, he's got to prove that God is not unfair with you in that you did not have the written law in condemning you in your sins. And so he says, hey, you've got intellect, you've got conscience. Through your own conscience, you actually can ascertain the very moral requirements of the law itself. Okay, now he speaks then of the wrath of God that is going to be poured out, and he says you deserve the wrath that is coming. Okay, that brings us up then to the, the third chapter where we'll start tonight. And let's start, uh, uh, Angie, with you. And we'll re read on around in that third chapter. If you don't want to read, just pause, and the next person can go ahead and, and pick up. Okay? Angie? What advantage is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some do not have faith? Well, their lack of faith 
brings out God's righteousness more clearly what shall we say that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us I'm going I'm using a human argument certainly not if that were so how could God judge the world someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's tr truthfulness and so increases his glory why am I still condemned as a sinner why not say as we are being slanderously reported as saying and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. <clears throat> there is no one who understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of apples is on their lips. Their, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now I know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. But now our righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? He is not the God of Gentiles. Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, and they are uncircumcised through that the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Okay, let's pause there and get into his example that he gives. Uh, notice his question in uh, starting of chapter 3. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Well, obviously, you can see the Jew with that in his mind. He says, you're just as guilty as the Gentile. You're condemned in your sin. Uh, you need to be saved in Christ. And so the obvious question to their mind was, what advantage have we had all these years? In other words, their attitude would be that all of these years we have followed God and we've taught our children and all. What is there any advantage to this whatsoever? Uh, when I read that, one of the things I think of is the, the parable that Jesus gave uh, concerning the people that were 
uh, called in to work in the vineyard. And remember, there were those that worked all day, and then he brought in people in the middle of the day and the late. And then at the last part of the day, he paid them their wages. And remember, everybody got the same wage, whether you've been working all day or whether you came in late. And remember, those that had been working all day got disturbed. And he asked them, why are you disturbed if I'm gracious? Uh, you know, because I am gracious toward others. Well, this is, again, the thinking of the Jew. Well, here you've got these, these raunchy Gentiles. Uh, they've been out here fornicating and doing everything under the sun and serving a multitude of different idols. And, and you're saying that we're no better than they are, that we're just, we're just rank sinners. Uh, what advantage have we had all these years? And so he said, yes, you had some advantages. You know, you, you were entrusted uh, with the oracles of God. And, and they had the advantage of that law down through the years. In fact, uh, you might, a similar question might come up right now. Uh, here is uh, someone who, uh, who maybe is raised in a Christian family, and they become a Christian at an early age, and they live their life, you know, as a Christian. And they, are, you know, they, they sin, they're not perfect, but they live pretty decent lives, and they've worshipped God these years, and they've given financially, and, and here they are, 45 years of age. And here's this guy over here that's uh, uh, been divorced and married three different times. Uh, he's uh, lived with eight other people. Uh, he's been a bisexual. He now has AIDS, the worst possible scenario that we can picture, and, and he makes a decision to become a Christian. And so all his sins are forgiven. He is just as saved as, as anybody else. There's no difference. He's every bit as saved as anybody else. Well, then the question becomes, what advantage... The, the person that has been following God all these years and had the Bible, did he have any advantage at all? They're, they're equally saved right now. Okay, anybody want to take a shot at that? What advantage did the person have that's been following God all those years? He didn't have to reap the consequences of his sin. Okay. You, the, we've all said the, the more sins, the more consequences, right? That, uh, and when we repent and we get the forgiveness of our sins, uh, the consequences... Are, are, are there. Uh, uh, I can stop <coughs> drinking after I've destroyed my liver and God is not going to perform a miracle and get my liver in shape again. I, I can repent, stop drinking and go from this, this point on. Uh, I might have reared my family uh, as a non-Christian and, and there's all kinds of consequences as a result of the kind of father and husband that I have been. And so I can repent and become a Christian. Any one of them can. But those consequences that are there they're not going to go away. And so, yes, uh, having that information and to whatever degree you've submitted to it, there's definite advantages there. And so the Jew had a very definite advantage, but his advantage was not from the standpoint of salvation. And that's important to keep in, the, in our mind today. From the standpoint of salvation, anybody at any time in their life, uh, the guy out here that's been a homosexual for 20 years and, and now has AIDS or the bank robber or the guy that's uh, built the government through the savings and loan out of so many billions of dollars or whoever it is that everybody can repent of their sins and, and be saved. So he answers the question that the Jew would naturally have in his mind. Okay, now notice another thing that, that's in their mind. He says on this business of, of being saved by grace through faith. He's in verse 5, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say then? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using it in human judgment. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, 
and so increases his glory. In other words, that as a result of us falling short, God looks even greater, okay? The darker uh, the situation, the greater the light shines. And so the argument is if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? In other words, uh, uh, apparently I've done something good. Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, as some claim we say, let us do evil that good may result. All right, do you see what Paul's answering there? The Jew that has not embraced Christianity is arguing with them. And, and he's simply saying that what you're saying is your, your unrighteousness has brought out the righteousness of God. If that's the case, why don't you people just really get out there and roll in sin and, and bring his righteousness out even more? In other words, they have pursued that in, a, in what they think is an argument against Christianity. And so let us do evil that good may result. Well, Paul's going to deal with this, especially when we hit the sixth chapter. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge. All right, where was this charge made? Chapter 1 and chapter 2. He charged that the Jew and the Gentile are under sin, as it's written. Now, here's what he's going to do. When he says, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one, he's quoting David from the Psalms. Okay, now notice his point. Look at verse 19. After he says that there's no one righteous, not even one, no one understands, we've all turned away, uh, we're all sinners, nobody does what's right, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. In other words, who was David writing this to? To the Jew under the law. So Paul's not, he said, listen, Paul has made the charge that Jew and Gentile are sinners, but Paul says, not just me. Go back and read your own great prophet David, and he recognized that there was absolutely no righteous people on this earth, that everybody was a sinner. And he says, now who's David writing to? We know that David wasn't writing to the Gentile. David was writing for those of us that were under the law. So he actually calls David as a witness one that recognized that, that even among the Jews, there just simply was no righteous people on the face of this earth. And keep in mind, when we use righteous, we mean in the sense of doing what is right in a perfect sense. Okay, therefore, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Well, why is that? Can you be righteous by perfectly keeping the law? Yes. But the problem is no one has kept it. So therefore, no one will be declared righteous. There, there is absolutely nobody on this earth that will be justified by perfect law keeping. Not because you couldn't be if you did it. That's the way Jesus was perfect, was keeping the law. But we just simply don't do it. We fall short. So what's the purpose of the law then? Well, the next statement part of verse 20. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Okay. So the law makes us conscious of sin. We're, we, we mentioned that we can perceive certain things through our conscience. So here you are, you're, you're driving along on the, the highway, and, and your own intellect says, hey, I shouldn't drive any faster than a certain speed. It's, it's foolish. Okay? So you've got that much figured out through your own intellect and your own experience with the car. But then you hit the sign, and the sign says 55 miles per hour. Well, now you are extremely conscious. You know, you really stand condemned. 
And so the law makes us conscious of sin. You, you've got this conscience, this sense of awe. You basically figure out these things. But then you read in the law, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, etc. And you look at that and now, no if, ands, or buts about it, you know you stand condemned of sin. And so the law had as its purpose making us aware of the fact that we are sinners before God. Okay, now the next thing is, how is man going to be saved or righteous before God? It says, now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So he's saying the whole Old Testament points to what I'm saying. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. Okay. Then he continues on and says, let's see, in verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. On the one hand, the condemnation, God had to do that to be just. Uh, if God was going to just weak over our sins, then he was not just. So how does God justify us and remain just? Well, he does it through giving Jesus as a sacrifice offering and then forgiving us based on our willingness to repent and put our trust in him. Then he maintains his justice and then the justifier of those of us who are unjust. Okay, what have we got to brag about in all of this? And this was important to the Jew. Uh, the Jew liked to brag about how religious he was. Uh, some Christian brethren like to brag about the fact they're a little more right than the other fellow. Where is he boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And so Paul says that there, nobody, Jew or Gentile, has any right to stand up and brag or boast before God. Nobody has any right to walk around in life and say, hey, I'm saved because I'm a good person. If you're saved tonight, it's not because you're a good person. And I hope you're, we're all good people. But it's not for that because every last one of us falls short of perfect goodness. And so if you're saved tonight, it's because of your trust in the atonement of Christ. And no one of us have any right to stand up and brag over, over anything. All right, then the next question, do we then nullify the law, verse 31, by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Well, how are you upholding the law? Well, the law simply, as Paul said, made you aware of sin. The law said that we all did fall short, and everything about this salvation is in fulfillment of what the law and the prophets spoke of. So we don't nullify it. We actually uphold it. Uh, Paul will later say in another letter that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Okay, let's get into the fourth chapter. Where did we leave off? Jack, okay. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits 
credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also from the, for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstance was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It wasn't after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited, credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith, of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us, who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, now, if I can look at the example he uses... Abraham's important for several reasons. First of all, remember that the Jew was thinking of himself as somebody special because of the law of Moses. And here's the Gentile who, who does not have the law of Moses. But Abraham predates the law of Moses by 500 years. And so he goes all the way back to Abraham. Well, obviously they believed Abraham was saved, uh, but it, it, nobody the law of Moses hasn't even been given yet. Nobody's even heard of Moses. All right, not only that, they've looked at Abraham as this great man of faith uh, who did all of these great things. But what he nails down is it wasn't the doing of anything that Abraham did that justified him. In fact, look how clear he is uh, when it comes to his circumcision. He says uh, in verse 10 of chapter 4, under what circumstances was it credited to him? Speaking of the, God's righteousness. Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Any 
physical act can be no more than a demonstration of what you actually have in your heart. But it's in your heart first. Like he says, out of the abundance of the man's heart, his mouth speaketh. It's first in the heart, then it comes out. Any action is first in the heart, and then he comes out. And so then the question becomes, at what point in time was Abraham justified? And he said, Abraham was justified at the point he put his trust in God. And the circumcision and everything that Abraham did, that was the result of having faith in God. James later will make the statement, show me your faith without works, and by, by my works will show you my faith. James was not teaching justification by works. James was saying that if you have faith, it will show itself in works. In the same way that John the Baptist said, bring forth works, meet for repentance. He wasn't teaching justification for more works. He was simply saying that if you have repented in your heart, there will be an outward manifestation of it in the works themselves. So he says that Abraham then was justified because of his faith in God. He goes back and he quotes from Genesis 15, 6. Uh, in the third verse there when he says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness that Abraham was not righteous because of what he did but Abraham was righteous because he put his trust in God now look at the next statement when a man works his wages are not credited to him as a gift but as an obligation however to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked his faith is credited as righteous David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And so he quotes David again. What he's saying is that both Abraham and David had a good understanding of salvation. And all you have to do with David is go back and read Psalms 51, which is David's prayer after his adultery with Bathsheba and even having a man put to death and trying to cover it up. And David will make it very clear to you in his appeal to God that he knew his entire justification depended on the mercy of God and his willing to repent and put his trust in God. And he's also taken them back to Abraham and saying, go back and look at what was said there. Abraham never believed he was saved by works. Abraham never boasted or talked about how great he was. Abraham knew that he was saved because of his trust in God. Well, then he proceeds from there to give an example of just what does it mean to put your complete trust in God. And he takes an example out of Abraham's life that uh, he was told that he was going to have a child at a time when he was an old man, that he knew that his body was dead, uh, Sarah was past childbearing age, that there is no reason that they should have had a child. And yet when God told him that he was going to have a child, he still believed God and said that God could bring it about. And so that very act of trusting what God says and believing in it, and, and in other words, we're talking about more than intellectual belief. Uh, there, there's, there's a big difference between just intellectual belief in God and an actual trusting faith where we actually submit and follow God. But a very, very big difference there. All right, anybody want to make any comment or observations about anything we've covered so far? Anything at all? Okay, let's go on to the, that fifth chapter. Barbara, you pick up there. Verse, verse 3. Right. Uh -huh. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit 
who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would, one would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we save, be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, did the sin enter the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sin, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there is a law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking command, as did Adam, who was pattern of one to come. The gift is not like the, not like the trespass, for if, the in, for, if, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of, of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the Spirit of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigns through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in his life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so the trespass might so that the trespass might increase. <clears throat> but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah, go ahead in that first part now. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We die to sin. How can we live it in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in death in his death we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay. Let's go back and look at the uh, first part there where he has everybody justified by faith 
and you have in verse 1, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we've gained access by faith into his grace, and so Paul's no question about his plan of salvation, that you're saved strictly by grace through faith, that you cannot boast of anything. If there's any work in all involved, then it would be something that was not a, that was not a gift itself. All right, now, notice a point, because he, he's building up to a question he's going to answer in the sixth chapter. And, and that question is, if you're not saved by works, you're saved only because of your faith in Jesus, and you're made righteous, then why not just go on sinning? And let God's grace abound all the more. Well, again, that's, that's the question in the Jewish mind. Why not just go on sinning? So he's going to build his case now to show that although you are saved by grace through faith, you're not saved by works in any sense of the word. When we go on Sunday and we partake of the Lord's Supper and we sing songs and we have prayer and we contribute and all of this, we are not saved because we did any of that. We're not saved because our church is accurately organized. We're not saved because we're good moral people, that we fall short and we're saved for one reason, and that's by... Well, if that's the case, then, then what, what is to keep us from... Let's just go out and sin and let God's grace abound. And by the way, from within fundamentalist groups, uh, such as my background in religion is from a fun, fundamentalist group, uh, there is almost, has always been almost the fear of teaching grace in the right sense. It's like that, well, what's going to happen if, if we get up and tell people that, that, you're, that you don't have to come on Wednesday night or Sunday night or something like that, or you don't have to do such and such, then most of them are probably not going to be there. Or if we tell them you don't have to give, then most are not going to give. Or if you say that you're not saved by doing good, then people are just going to go out here and, and fornicate. And there is the literal fear of, of preaching pure salvation by grace for fear that people are just going to get out there and live wrong and not come to the services, not contribute, or, or, or not do right, or even care, and say, well, let's, you know, we're all imperfect, we're all sinners, just let God's grace abound. Well, that's the question that he's posed, and now he's going to answer it. All right, notice the first step. He says, uh, uh, verse 5, Hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. Now, Let's read the whole context there. Because the Holy Spirit is not mysteriously coming into anybody's heart and causing them to love God. In fact, if your love for God is based on the fact that God in some mystical way has caused you to love Him, I don't know what glory that could be to God. Uh, the glory to God, it comes about when you and I have our own free choice make the decision. Well, then what's the part the Holy Spirit has played in this? Okay, look at verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? All right, notice Paul's argument there. Paul says that his first step on the, uh, as a result of being saved by grace, he says that the Holy Spirit has given you this information that at a time when you were enemies of God, you were sinners, you deserved condemnation, 
that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, that Christ come and died for you. All right, the end result, and let's forget about religion for, for just a moment. How do you as a human being feel right now if you're out here in a very bad situation, whatever that bad situation may be, and then somebody out of the goodness of their heart bails you out? I mean, you're in a bad situation and somebody out of the absolute pure goodness of their heart bails you out. How do you feel towards that person? We're in debt to them. You feel right in debt? You feel thankful? Uh, that's sure not the person that you want to hurt in some way, is it? I mean, that, that's, that's crazy. In fact... To willfully throw another load on them. Right. It, in fact, it's interesting that even... Uh, uh, sometimes you see pictures on the news where people that are going to be electrocuted because they have savagely murdered other people and who is right there with them many times? It's their, their mother. And you look at them together and you can see that uh, it would be the very unusual person if, if she's been a good mother in any sense of the word that, that would turn around and, and, and in other words she seems to have no fear of him whatsoever. That there is a feeling of some of debt in, in some sense. I'm saying if the mother has been, any, has been anything at all or the father has been anything at all. But Paul's point is that you don't understand what I'm saying. That yes, you're saved by grace through faith. It has to be this way. That yes, the law is right, it's good, it's holy. He's going to get to that. But the end result of salvation by grace through faith is not to create a lascivious, hedonistic society that says, hey, let us go ahead and sin and grace may abound. But rather, it's going to create a group of people that now, from their heart, love God. They're going to love God because when they think of God, they're going to think that God loved me so much that even though I made a mess out of my life, and even though I deserved to die, that he gave Christ Jesus as a sacrifice for my sin. And so, pardon me, that love for God now causes us to feel, in other words, we want to please God. Uh, that there's no way a person can properly understand salvation by grace through faith and then not have a desire uh, to actually please God. All right, then he comes on down to the sixth chapter and he's going to deal with that question more specifically. In verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, the same argument he's already posed, you know, that uh, if you're saved by grace through faith, then let everybody go on sinning with the grace of God increase. By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? In other words, when you repented, you changed your mind. You, you died to it. So how, why in the world do you want to live in something that's so bad? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore baptized with him or buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away and we should no longer be slaves of sin. Because anyone who has died is freed from sin. All right, you know, it's interesting in this context. This, by those of us who understand that baptism in the New Testament sense is immersion, uh, you know, that, and there's no, no question there. The, the Greek word itself simply means immersion. But this has been a text that's used for, been used primarily for one reason, and that's to prove to, to people that baptism is immersion and you should be immersed. But that's not Paul's reason for writing that. Paul's writing to Christians who have all been immersed. 
They've all been baptized. And in a context where he's talking about justification by grace through faith, not of works, where some have posed an argument of let us go on sinning that grace may abound, Paul then is dealing with why that a Christian is not going to do this, even though his justification is, is by grace. And so his subject here is not baptism. Baptism is the point of reference that he's using, that depicted something. But what is his subject in that sixth chapter? Look at it again. Uh, starting with verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We're buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may live a new life. We have been united with him in his death. We will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin may be done away because he who has died has been freed from sin. Paul's subject here is death to sin. Baptism is that point in time where a person by faith was immersed into Christ. And that physical act of immersion typified a death, burial, and resurrection. But notice the physical act can do no more than typify a spiritual truth. I mean, other than that, you get, you, I mean, you get it baptized every time you've ever gone swimming or got underwater. But it, it's not the immersion that's important, although it is immersion. But what's important is, what does it typify? And it typifies a death, a burial, and a resurrection. And so his subject here is that, hey, when you repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ, you actually buried or crucified this old person that was walking in rebellion against God so that you may be made alive in Christ. And this death, burial, and resurrection, you actually typified in the watery grave of baptism when you were immersed and raised to walk in newness of life. And so now in verse 8, if we died with Christ, we believe we will live with him. And we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way now, count yourselves dead to sin. Notice the argument he's answering. You're saved by grace through faith. Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. What's the argument? You're dead to sin. I mean, after all, you love God. God did this out of love for you. The love of God through the information the Holy Spirit has given you has been shed abroad in your heart. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Okay, in verse 14, sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know? And then he goes ahead to argue again. In other words, what is Paul saying there? The Jew, in a system of salvation by grace through faith, as opposed to a system where he thought, some of them, that he was justified by law, where is he really going to be the most moral and the best person? According to Paul's argument. Okay, in other words, Paul is saying that, no, I'm not throwing the law down the tubes. The fact is, you're going to live better than you've ever lived. That you have actually crucified this person. You, you now love God. It's one thing to have the law and believe that it's right. 
it's another thing to love the lawgiver. And so you love God, you recognize he was right, you recognize he deserved to die, you recognize the debt that you owe him in Christ, uh, the love of God is in your heart, and, and you now want to live your life to please God. So a true understanding of grace actually motivates godliness of life. Well, then let's get back to some of the things we pose. What about this person who, who uh, when it comes to uh, the service of God, does not want to engage in Bible study or he does not want to do what he can or does not want to grow or is willing to, be, uh, to live a life that is worldly or anything? That person doesn't understand salvation by grace through faith. There, there's no way in the world that that person understands or the love of God. Is that person walking with his faith in Jesus? He's not. Uh, he may intellectually believe in Christ, but he's not walking with his faith in him. Part of the problem in the church, when we, we talk about the worry of, of teaching grace through faith, and then people not being what they should be, what we do through our fear tactics is, is we sell a lot of fire insurance. Uh, we, we get up and talk about hellfire and brimstone, and we throw the laws at laws out here, and, and so we get people who really don't trust the Lord and really don't love him, but they know they're going to die, and so they're going to take out fire insurance, and fire insurance will get you in the door, however many times a preacher says you should come and keep you from knocking anybody in the head during the week. But that belief in fire insurance is, is not going to cause a person to love God. Uh, only love is caused by a true understanding of just how much somebody loves you. And, and when we understand how much someone loves us and what they've done for us, that in itself is the motivating force for love for the other purpose and person. And so Paul's argument is salvation by grace through faith actually breeds a higher form of godliness in life that was ever, than was ever possible under the law. Any comments or questions? Um, I got something from earlier on in the chapter 5, kind of in your argument, skipping on down. It starts talking about uh, how death reigned. You know, and death came through one person, but everybody sinned so that everybody dies. But he, he makes a comment here, he says in verse 14, uh, death reigned from the time of Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking command as did Adam. It was a pattern of the one to come. What, what is he talking about there? I mean... Okay, look at verse 12 now. Sin entered through one man, okay? We all died going back to Adam, right? One man's sin. But, and this death came to all men because all sin, right? Adam's sin, that one man, death passed unto all mankind as a result of that. But what you have there is this per, the foreknowledge of God who knew that every man would also sin, just like the, I mean, after all, the sacrifice is 2,000 years ago. There is the obvious assumption there that everybody after that is, is going to need Christ, that nobody was ever going to live. And so in the same, the same assumption we've had for 2,000 years on God's part since Christ was there from the very first with Adam, that Adam broke, broke God's law, but there was the foreknowledge and understanding of man by God and that man would sin. And so death passed unto all man. In other words, that Adam got it started, but we still deserve it. And it, and it passed on to all man and then all of us sin and, and bring that guilt. And all he's doing there, from what I can see, Mark, is that the question is, how can one sacrifice atone for the sins of all mankind? In other words, that uh, this Jesus is just one person. So how can the, that one life pay for the death of millions of people who deserve to die? 
And so he says, well, one act of sin uh, got it started in the first place, and death passed unto mankind through one act of sin. And then through this one act, God in turn is passing righteousness unto all men. And again, it would be from those, of course, who put their trust in him. And part of this, too, on that, when it talks about in Adam, you know, people died, the, some of that maybe is a question of, uh, you know, of the physical and the spiritual. In other words, that uh, we know, for example, that spiritually a person does not die until he actually sins and is accountable before God. Of course, there's other passages that, that go into that and explain it and all. But even a baby who has not sinned is going to physically die. Uh, that it's, it, the statement seems to be that Adam separated man from God and, and death has passed unto all mankind. But then anybody that lives up to that accountable age, they all sin, you know, and death passes on. But then that one act of death came and was passed on, and then in like manner, he says, by this one act of righteousness that God can justify the many. Okay, I guess it's just that uh, I've had some talks with some people that's like, uh, you know, well, I'm dying because Adam sinned. You know, if he hadn't sinned, I'd be living forever. You know, and I'm like, well, you know, you sinned. Right. And it says, for all sinned. You know, I, I was reading that. And so I, I don't The best know. is verse 12 there, I think, Mark, where it says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So it's my fault that I'm dying. Yeah, right. It's not Adam's fault. Right. You, Adam started it and was the first one but if you would have been first you would have been the first one and if i'd have been first i'd have been the first one and, and that's pretty evident because you and i even with the example of adam and everybody else still sin and even right now at uh, 51 years of age and 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 having read the bible through a multitude of times and and lived a life and and saw and agreed that the law is 100 percent right i still fall short so there's no, no question in my mind that had I been first, and I remember as a child, I used to get a little disturbed at Adam. You know, I think, you know he, that if Adam had done a little better job, then maybe we wouldn't have this awful thing to look forward to. But, of course, we know now that had I been there, probably wouldn't have lasted as long as Adam did. All right, anybody with any comments? Okay, can you see now how that uh, when you're studying with somebody that's not a Christian and anybody who has really messed up their lives and everything like that, then how important this is? I really believe that uh, one of the reasons that, uh, I don't know if I want this on the record or not, uh, yeah, that thing, because I get... This uh, really puts a very high you know, importance on that uh, love for God and how to, how to get that. And that's something that that um, that I don't feel very comfortable with. You know, I, I don't know how to work on that. How do you work on loving God? I, mean, I can tell it comes more in my case. Just as I get older, it just comes. But I don't know. I don't know any scheme I can go about to really increase. And if that's so critical, you know, because that is our motivation. I know what in reality is the motivation for me a lot of times right now is selfish. And it's be, it's because, you know, some years back I came to the conclusion that, that everything in the Bible is absolutely right and perfect. So, you know, I want to do what's right. And But it's uh, oftentimes, 
I, I and now in every instant little thing I can see, I can see there's a consequence if I do something wrong. I can see consequences. I mean, immediately when I have pride. I mean, any little thing, wherever I sleep, I, I just know I'm going to be just like killing myself, you know. Right. So, I mean, that is part of my motivation. It's like a selfish thing now. Well, you know, that's that right. That's part right. of my motivation is because I, I don't right. want to cut my own throat. A, a pro what you're saying is good there on, so far as this worry about people and law. A proper understanding of law would be of such a nature that you would realize you cut your nose to spite your own face. When you go out, in other words, this person that thinks that, hey, I can go out here and do such and such and still be safe, you, you just destroy your life. You're right. The law is perfect. And one motivation for keeping the law is that it is absolutely right. It works. I mean, you, there's no question you'll have a better marriage. You're going to have better children. You're, you're going to have better relations with other people. You're probably going to live longer. You're going to be healthier and all of that to the extent that you uh, keep the law. So there's that. that's right. But the love for God comes in the thing. Number one, who gave you the law? Who, who made you? Who gave you your conscience? Who gave you your intellect? But the, but and, the and difficult the, thing is it's something so abstract. It's, uh, you know, I'm used to loving people. I can see. I can, uh, I, I can, I can, you know, I can recognize all those things. And, and it does happen. I think the key is somehow you have to become more spiritual. You can't like us, uh, fall in love well, with a spiritual entity, entity until you... But the thing of it is that you... That's why the evidence itself is so important. I mean, without... And not only that, when you talk about loving people, what do you love? I mean, let's... let's it is a spiritual thing. The person is a spirit and a body. What is it about people that causes you to love them? And you're dealing with abstract spiritual qualities. It's, it's mercy, kindness... Fairness, justice, honesty, uh, consideration for other people, all of those are qualities that cause you to love others. Uh, just like you never saw Paul, but that based on just what you've read about Paul and his letters, you learn to respect him and, and to love him. And, and, the, and the same with the other writers in the Bible, whether it's David or whatever, you, you have feeling for them just based on the, the information itself. And the thing with God, I think that, uh, like in the Old Testament, David would make the statement, I'm, he looked at his own body, and he said, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And then he began to think of all the, the wisdom of God that was involved in the creation and all. And I think when you think of the fact that, number one, you don't have to be, and, and your existence is just uh, that God saw fit to make you and make you in his image. And then that, uh, that with the law itself, that God gave the law and all the benefits that come from it are, are God-ordained. And then when you think of the fact, like you said, that we fall short and that Christ is there, and, and the whole thing of the four Gospels is uh, you go back and picture in your mind what Jesus went through, and he did that for us, and that's the motivating force that Paul said is, is used by God to, to cause that love. But no, the but it's not a purely I mean, I know the, a selfish uh, obedience to mean. commands will not fulfill the what you have to do because uh, some of the things you're going to have to do as a Christian. In fact, think of some. Think of the, some things that you have to do as a Christian that really don't benefit you and, and may be a negative thing so far as this life is concerned. Well, um, things uh, sacrifice, giving up time. Uh, Okay. Doing things like conducting Bible studies, uh, like in school down there, when I don't have the when I don't right. feel like I have the time sometimes. I mean, here you are studying to get a degree, uh, and and you could easily spend all your time on getting the highest possible average, 
and yet taking time to go to all the church services to involve yourself in Bible study in the church and all, knowing that you're taken away from that. Uh, when uh, a person go, uh, takes a part of their income to support that work, and that's income that they could uh, add to houses or cars or whatever they want, and yet their income is going for that. Uh, when you stand up for what is morally right in our society, is it always the popular, easiest thing to do? But you know, another point to look at that I feel somewhere you're coming from is because I've thought of this too, but you're talking about your ability to love God as much as you should. Is that kind of, I mean, is that some of the idea you had? Like, could you honestly say, though, that you love God more than you do your parents? Because I, I pondered that question a lot. I said, I really can't say that. You know, at that time when I was thinking about that point of view, I felt guilty because I actually loved my parents more than I did God. I think I don't a feel distinction, like, though, because uh, I, I feel at closer. That time, yeah, at that time, the that reason kind of bothered me. What what I would think of is like with my parents. I've got a, I think a good. I had a mother that's a Christian and a biological father that was a reprobate, and uh, and then my stepfather was not a Christian and became a Christian. And I look at my parents and I say that the only difference between her and him was the influence of the Bible. That was the difference. You know, it was the influence, and so she was that type person because of the influence of, of the of the Bible and, and her submission to that, you know. And I would think that, uh, and then, see, when you deal with your parents, that I'd like, I know what you're talking about, back at a point in time, and you think it way, but you'd tell your child, God created your parents. And, and, if they're, and whatever good that they're doing in their relationship, if it's right, it's to the extent they're submitting to what God says. In other words, that I'd, uh, tell a child today, look at the parents out here that are not following God and, and look at what is happening in their lives and in their marriages and things like that and look at their situation and then look at those that are following and see how that you're benefiting. So the the real person behind all goodness becomes God. Uh, I wanted to say something. I think that sometimes can help is a, a concept of God. You know, that um, I think something somebody brought out to me was John Clayton. You know, he has a lot of real good work, especially in the book The Source. You know, he has one chapter that talks about what is God. You know, since God's not physical now, you know, he came, he appeared as Jesus, but, um, you know, since he's not physical, there's a, a lot of things that you got to keep in mind about God that, you know, uh, I don't know, to me, it's, it's helped me to understand a little better. But I, my ultimate motivation is, in the past year, I've come to see that, that sacrifice, you know, that how could... God loved me so much to die for me. That motivation right there is enough to motivate me. And I, I'm not saying I'm perfect or anything, but I, I look at that and it overwhelms me. Yeah, know, I guess. That I, you know, I just can't, but the, the concept is there, but that, that one thing just overwhelms me. I can't understand that. But I think that, that's what it's supposed to, that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 5. I, maybe that's why I throw it out of my mind a lot. Because I can't comprehend it. You can't keep it in your mind. I can't, I can't comprehend so I just throw it out. There's room for growth. There's no question. You grow in love all your life, just like you grow in faith. There's room for, for growth there. But even when it comes to loving people, I mean, who do you love? Here's two people. One of them is very good-looking, very intelligent, and very rich, but he lies, cheats, dislikes you, is selfish, full of pride, Here's another one that is ugly as a mud fence and, and not very bright, but he's kind, considerate, patient, understanding, honest, considerate of other people's feelings. Which one do you wind up loving? 
You see that I'm saying that what I'm saying is that you don't love anything that's physical. That the only thing you can that you love spiritual qualities, and uh, that people will say, "I love that person," but the person, the, the I mean, uh, the animal's got a body just like I've got. You know, the the person is something from within that body. That it's a it's the spiritual quality of that person that that causes you to love them or or to to have feelings of a negative nature. It it has nothing to do with her with her uh, physical body. I think the more relations you have with a person, more contact with a person, the more you come to know and love her more. And I think that's that's the reason you say that the older you get, the more. You know, uh, you know I have noticed right. that, but I was wondering, is there any special any tactic you can use besides just getting older? I know, well, that's, that's well, you're, but it's not just age, Steve. It's it's information right. that you're getting. Just like right. there was a. A song a multitude of years back that this was a love type song it had nothing to do with God but the principle was there and it says to know him is to love him uh, that uh, you come to love people as a result of coming to know them some people the more you know them the less respect you have for them others the more you know them the more respect you have for them all right I think the more we come to know God the more we love him and great, I think that obviously as we get older, we come to know him better. And in that sense, I mean, I think I love God more now than when I was younger. I think when I was younger, I've always respected and reverenced, but I don't think I loved as, and I, and I think if I live to be another 10 years older, I think I'll love him more then. But I think the more that we come to to know God, the, the more that we love him. I think, I think after raising your own children, you come to really love your, your your own parents and respect them for what they did for you yeah. more than you do as you're growing up. Yeah, I think that's a good point too, Jack. I think we same way here. You take when you're young, you tend to take for granted mm -hmm. things even people do for you. Then when you get up old enough to where you're the one doing, you think back and appreciate and realize what the other person did and they're doing for you. Well, to have love more than, uh, how is it, uh, ten times a mother's love? I mean, how could you, how can you explain that? I mean, can you fathom that? And then you think back, that's that's what he says, that's how much he loves us. Well, well even the... Even the, the illustrations that God gives when we say our Father in heaven, uh, that that's just a concept that's being used, that we, we understand the father-child relationship, and so then God is saying that just as a father loves his child, then that's the way I love you, and of course that's from within the context of a, of a good father. Anybody else? I was going to say one more thing on this same thing, that um, I heard a real good talk at the Camp Semester Seminar in Seattle, the, there's something about like the chapters in Romans 9 through 11, when Paul starts praising God, you know, that Paul, it seems, is praising God for what he doesn't know about God. You know, God's given us a lot of information and stuff, but I don't. I just wonder how much more God has to him that, you know, that we don't know. I mean, that, to yeah. me, that that is another thing that just... No way of reaching. You know, uh, I don't know, it creates a sense of awe. You know, yeah. I just want to do what I can for God, you know. Yeah. Even how he works in providence and things like that. Yeah. You wonder how. Yeah. We had a situation come up, in fact, that 
we were talking about uh, this girl and I were talking about another girl that, that apparently had left the church and we thought, gee, we'd like to get her into a study, you know, and the very next night we saw her, you know, and it was like we prayed about it and it was, it was, you know, and again, you think that it's providence working itself out that, you know, how, how in the world does that happen? But, uh, but I don't know. A sense of awe just creates a, you know, a sense of, you know, wanting to do what I can. Well, I'm bad. I guess we won't know until we just don't know. Anybody else with any comments?